Uh, hello, folks at Talk Film Society. Uh, welcome. Uh, this is Thomas Mariani, one of the hosts of Double H Devil Bill, along with the other hosts. Introduce yourself, sir. I'm Adam Thomas. Hi. <laughs> yes. Hello to you all. Uh, so this is a, an interesting little uh, tidbit here that we're putting at the front of an episode uh, from our backlog from before we even joined Talk Film Society. Can you believe there was a time, Adam, where we weren't a part of the great podcast network, Talk Film Society? Look, I love being part of this network, but I can absolutely believe that when there was a time before the network, there's been so much. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Good God. Yes, uh, but this is an episode that uh, we released originally October 27th, 2020, um, as part of uh, every October we like doing uh, horror-themed episodes. This is one that we're re-releasing because uh, over here on Talk Film Society, there's a bunch of great podcasts that are coming out related to David Cronenberg. Uh, which, uh, you know, because of Crimes of the Future recently came out, which, for the record, before we started recording this, I came back from a screening of Crimes of the Future. And Fuck it's... you! You saw it? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty great. It's pretty interesting. Oh, God damn it. I want to see it so bad. Pre- pretty fascinating, yeah. There's there's a lot to talk about with that particular film, but there will be a bunch of other Cronenberg discussions that will be coming out on Talk Film Society, celebrating sort of a Cronenberg month. And uh, this episode from October 27, 2020... Um, features us talking about Shivers and Dead Ringers, uh, two uh, films of his, uh, one of which is, you know, a good pick, one of them is a bad pick per our usual discussion. And I think it falls directly into that. One of those is pretty great, and the other one uh, exists. <laughs> yes. Uh, so you get to hear all that, and it's a good reminder for uh, anybody um, who listens normally to our show on Talk Film Society, definitely go over to uh, Podbean, double-edged double bill uh, dot podbean.com to find our full archives with about like 190 episodes from before oh we God. joined. Yes, yeah, so there's God. a lot more for you to listen to. Uh, definitely dig into those archives. But now here is a that episode. Enjoy. Ah, uh, hey there, buddy. Please let me see your ticket stops for the double edge double bill. This week, David Cronenberg said shivers through dead ringers, and he's a dick. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. And I am Adam Thomas, and I am hungry for love. And I'm Thomas Mariani, and I'm not your buddy, friend. I'm not your friend, guy. Oh, um, <laughs> apologies to the nation of Canada, and hello, Shaquille, I hope you're listening. <laughs> As is custom. You would never know Shaquille's Canadian off-mic sounds exactly like that. <laughs> yeah, completely. Flappy head and everything. <laughs> uh, well, welcome to the Double-Edged Double Bill um, with our uh, final episode of the October Spooky Haunts. Can you believe it, Adam? October's already almost over. It's insane. I know. What in the fuck? I kind of just wish the, the whole year would be almost over, too. What are you talking about? Everything's been fine. I don't know what you're, what you're saying. Into me. 2020, great year. Wonderful year. Best year I've ever had. 
Best year of my life. Uh, but, you know, uh, we're ending on an interesting note because we're doing another uh, horror-themed director. And in this case, it is Mr. David Cronenberg, who, in case you couldn't tell from us doing a stupid Terrence and Phillip impression at the beginning, um, is a Canadian director. Probably, I would argue, the most prominent, at least, Canadian director that us dummies in the U.S. would know. Absolutely. And plus, I mean, all of his movies, except for that one from 2014, have been shot in Canada, too. So That's I mean, true. Maps of the Stars, which shot in Beverly Hills, partially, yeah, and his his last feature as of yet. Yeah, well, there's a reason. Obviously, we've been wanting to do this episode for quite a while, Adam, because we're both pretty big fans. Where did your fandom for him start? Uh, it's kind of odd, but David Cronenberg always had this stigma when I was growing up. Like his movies are gross, they're dirty, they're adult, they're full of sex and body horror, and which is a hundred percent accurate uh, as far as him being sex and body horror and kind of gross too. But um, I think. The first time I, oh man, I want to say the first one I saw was probably The Fly or Naked Lunch. I'm not 100% sure on that, but uh, I've been a, pretty much a big fan of his since I can remember. Yeah, I would probably say The Fly was also my introduction uh, to him. That was another great example of my father showing me that because he loved the effects work in it. And, of course, it being an infamous example of, like, oh, this is a horribly gory, messed up, bloody movie, but you can't watch these few scenes where Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum are, like, in bed together. Yep. My, my, dude, my dad was the same way with action movies. I could watch the most violent, fucked up shit, but the second there was nudity, he's like, close your eyes. Yeah, can't watch it. Now yeah, you're yeah. free to watch Jeff Goldblum's face melt off. Right, exactly. Uh, he's pulling his teeth out. All right, look at that. What? There's boobs? Oh, no! But, um... <laughs> Which, I mean, to be fair, does accurately describe... Um, I was listening to uh, a favorite podcast of mine. This had Oscar buzz. And the host pretty much summarized his career very well when they were talking about a dangerous method as um, horny, gory, or both. Which is... That describes any individual film of his. It's it, Most of them are both, honestly, <laughs> when you watch them. <laughs> yeah, most are absolutely both. And I think we've... Our two choices tonight pretty much nailed that as well. Yes, for sure. But what do you think sort of makes him so distinctive? Because there are plenty of sexy, gory, and or both uh, sort of movies out there. What do you think makes Cronenberg sort of distinct in that particular blend of horror? Well, because he tries to make the gore sexy. It's not so much a gory movie with sex scenes in it. It's, it's all like sort of an encompassing recipe to where it feels like it had you couldn't have one without the other in this in his films um and especially the way he does with body horror and things like that uh he's he's definitely you know one of the few directors who really get into the idea of experimenting with you know your own body and flesh and becoming something else and uh he, you know, basically tries to put that in, in most of his movies. His movies are so ingrained in the idea of, like, human curiosity. And how often that obviously gets us into trouble in the case of, like, with our own bodies. It's like, oh, there's this weird, like, orifice growing out of me. What if I, like, touched it? <laughs> like, it's pretty much, it, his movies are made by people who picked their scabs when they were kids. Oh, yeah, sure. Ate their boogers or any of that shit. Right, yeah, the, the sort of the, you have this fascination with your body as you you know grow to a certain age, and that includes either like you have a horrible scar that you kind of like fascinated by, or you're starting to discover who you are as a person about your body. And I think he really dives into that a lot with his movies and really blurs the lines in interesting ways. Even when he like stopped really doing horror after a certain point, like in the '90s, he still at least had the fascination with like human psyches and how that kind of really destroys people in their own way. 
Um, and even, well, especially as they got more into sex, even when the violence kind of occurred at the same time. He He's a very interesting, distinctive filmmaker. He has not made a movie since 2014, which I think is kind of a bummer. But at the same time, it feels kind of like if you watch all of his movies, it feels like we're kind of leading up to something like Map to the Stars. I mean, it kind of feels like his big final fuck you to Hollywood in general. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The thing is, it's not that I wouldn't mind. Uh, seeing more Cronenberg, but at the same time, I you have what you have already, and all, most of it is fucking just brilliant. So I'm good without him, you know, sort of going the route of Carpenter or even Craven at the end of their careers, where they were kind of just putting out retreaded schlock. Yeah, that's true. Because even with like some like a Dangerous Method or some of the Oscar, be like even Cosmopolis, which I personally hate, that at least feels distinctive. Like that's not a movie any other filmmaker would really do, in all honesty. Um, so I, I give him credit for that. Plus, at least we're seeing sort of the next generation of that now with uh, Possessor by his uh, son Brandon, which I'm very curious about. Yeah, me too, man. Uh, didn't he also? Wasn't there another movie he did too? Was it like Antiviral or something? Yes, that came out a couple years ago. I have not seen that yet. I should probably watch that before I watch Possessor. It's okay. It's not the worst. I mean, it's it's yeah, it's it's okay. You know, it feels very much like early Cronenberg, like when he was starting to sort of find his voice and become what he became. That definitely uh, his son seems to kind of be following in those footsteps. Well, that's a pretty good segue, Adam, because uh, one of the two films we're talking about today, which, in case you're new, every week Adam and I pick two movies randomly that generally go under the uh, ideas of good or bad from some point of view. And, um, in the case of uh, last week, uh, I had two bad movies, Adam had two good ones, and so we ended up picking a number between one and ten for each other's choices, and we ended up getting for our bad pick, which we'll talk about first, is his first feature-length film, Shivers, from 1975, and then the good pick we have is Dead Ringers from 1988. So uh, let's go ahead and dive into first, Shivers. If you think you're not afraid of the dark, <laughs> if you think you have a strong stomach, <laughs> if you feel nothing can shock you, <laughs> if you say you don't scare easily, <laughs> if you believe you've seen everything, if this picture doesn't make you scream and squirm, you'd better see a psychiatrist. Quick. So, Shivers came out uh, October 10th, 1975, in Canada, obviously, where Mr. Cronenberg is from, and um, was interesting sort of production, because at that time, apparently based on an interview I saw with Cronenberg, um, Canadian productions in general were mostly, like, nature documentaries that were produced, and so he was kind of trying to find a new outlet to produce feature films, and he ended up uh, coming across uh, Cinepix, which is was an interesting company that made softcore porn at the time, and uh, decided to like put him on because they liked the sexuality of some of his like college earlier shorts, shorter films at least that he did, and were like, oh, we should have you on, but you have a very distinct weird eye for sexuality, so we should definitely kind of find an avenue for you, and he ended up having that avenue in the form of a horror film, Shivers. Uh, which went under some interesting titles. Originally, was called uh, Orgy of the Blood Parasites on the script, but was shot under the title The Parasite Murders, and then came out in the U.S. as They Came From Within, but is mostly known as Shivers at this point. And also an interesting other producer on this production was Ivan Reitman, who would later go on to obviously make Ghostbusters and write Meatballs and Animal House and stuff like that. So there's a lot of uh, sort of Canadian royalty going into this, including like Cinepix actually eventually became Lionsgate, which produces a lot of like sort of mid-tier budget movies, like the Sauce movies and stuff like that. It's so bizarre, you know, revisiting 
this movie. I, I had seen it before, but it's been a long, long time. And I remember not really liking it when I first saw it. I thought it was really cheap and cheesy and just almost like shock value for shock value's sake, which it definitely is that. But upon rewatching it for this show, I found a little bit of charm to it. And some of the characters I, I kind of got behind. And I was really sort of concerned for some of the characters and what was happening to them. Like, it, it sort of worked on me this time. That is interesting, because I hadn't seen this before. Um, it was streaming on the Criterion Channel streaming service. <laughs> Quite yes. They gave me a bottle of port when I watched it. <laughs> it just was mailed to you unannounced. Yep. <laughs> we see you're about to watch Shivers. Here's some port. <laughs> they have very delicate wine selections for every film on the Criterion channel. But yeah, I hadn't seen this before, and I watched some of the early Cronenberg stuff, which is on Criterion currently, as we're recording this. And I am, I guess, kind of in your earlier assessment of it, where I would say this is one of my lesser in terms of the Cronenberg ranking. But I do agree, at least, that it is fascinating, if nothing else, because a lot of the blueprints are laid out for Cronenberg's future career, as it often is with, like, the early films of a director. You can kind of see, like, oh, there's a lot of elements that would later go on. But, like, particularly, this is a movie that's both very gory and very horny. Literally with the actual concept of it. And if you do not like sexual assault in films, uh, this is probably not the one for you. Yeah, we should, I guess, like, briefly summarize, if you're not familiar with it, like, I'm sure most of you probably aren't, with Shivers. Um, it takes place in um, what was so wild for the mid-70s, which was a, an apartment condominium complex um, that had, like, a pool and all this other stuff. I love the opening of this movie, admittingly, where it's just like, oh, here's this elaborate complex where you can go and look, there's a laundromat inside, <laughs> and a supermarket, all these great accommodations you can have if you just uh, live here in this area that's, like, apparently on an island, so there isn't a lot of people around um except for those that live in this complex and uh the complex houses a bunch of people including this one scientist played by joe silver who is a character actor from the 70s who i've seen a couple other things and has such an amazing distinctive voice um, because then he looks exactly like perfectly characterized. Just like I want to talk to you about this virus I have. It's super low. I can't even get the baritone of it. Um, and he has this parasite that can control a human organ. And in the case of when this parasite gets out and starts infecting people, that organ is uh, the sex organs. And uh, no matter who it is—a man, woman, even child—they um, all get sort of uh, horned up in their own way, and it's uh, kind of upsetting. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely very upsetting, and there's a lot of just creepy, like, just makes you feel nasty shit in this movie. Uh, you know, like the one guy, have you met my daughter, Erica? And you're like, oh, God, what the fuck is happening here? And then the two girls on leashes, like, this is just so fucking weird. Uh, it definitely does have a lot of Cronenberg... I don't know, his flavor is definitely in the mix here. And you can tell it's a, it's a first starting out movie, but there is a lot of really kind of really good character acting in this movie too. Like, uh, I really like the doctor, the main guy. I think he's a pretty strong, like sort of lead to have. I think Lynn Laurie is absolutely just gorgeous in it and you feel horrible for her. Uh, it's just, it's, but it's gross. It's just super gross. There is just nonstop sexual assault in this entire film. And it does get a little uneasy to watch. But again, it's also maybe because 
A, I know it's David Cronenberg's first movie. B, I haven't seen it forever. And C, it is so sort of low budget that it's got a bit of a charm to it for me for some reason, which normally a movie like this, I'd instantly be sort of turned off by it. I, I, I can't stand sexual assault in films. Like, it just bothers me. Well, it's interesting it elicits that kind of reaction because it was very controversial at the time, though despite being very successful. It was actually the most successful Canadian film at the time that it was made. Only cost about $185,000 and made $100 million at the box office. But at the same time, it was also extremely controversial with, like, uh, Canada's Parliament literally debating the social and artistic value of it upon its release. And there was stuff like there was this Canadian journalist who wrote an article called uh, You Should Know How Bad This Movie Is, You Paid For It, in a big Canadian magazine because a lot of Canadian films are subsidized by the government. In this case, it was subsidized with government money that was paid by the taxpayers, even though obviously they got like a profit on it, given Cronenberg made literally a million dollars off of the movie. And that actually ended up screwing over his earlier career in terms of getting funding because it was so controversial. And I get it. Because admittingly, like, you know, given our modern perspective, it is definitely upsetting. It's like the sexual assault thing and sort of turned into like a zombie pandemic kind of thing. Um, it's not the most, you know, sensitive topic necessarily. And I think also it just doesn't have something that I really like about Cronenberg's movies where even if they do get uncomfortable with a lot of the sexual content, there is at least, like I mentioned earlier, the sort of curiosity that's on display from the individual person. Like, even in Rabbit, his movie that would come after this, there's at least, like, a weird curiosity, even as somebody's being becoming, like, a monster of some sort, he's doing awful things to people in, like, a sexual way and eventually a gory way. And as opposed to this movie, it kind of feels more like a, you know, generic zombie movie, which is natural to have as, like, your first feature, but also does kind of get a bit more tiring after a while, despite the shocking value of it oh yeah no i completely agree with you i mean i agree with everything you're saying uh and that's exactly how i felt the first time i saw it it's basically the same beat repeated over and over again you know people walking down a hallway and encountering these sort of sex crazed monsters wash repeat wash repeat i mean that's basically kind of what it is every set piece they're in you just know someone's going to jump out at them so yeah I, I don't disagree with you at all i guess maybe you know, the only thing I can say is I've seen so much worse nowadays as far as even the content of this movie that it's me. I'm probably a little desensitized to it. So this one, I'm like, ah, oh, it's not that bad. Not as bad as I remember it. You know, this after, you know, the hostile films and human centipede and all that shit. It's more thematically in terms of the sexual assault because it's not as yeah. like brazen in terms of like the actual like sexual encounters aren't as graphic necessarily. And even the gore is more charming, like especially the actual uh, parasite creature that comes out of people um, is charmingly low budget in terms of like it coming out of people and like spewing out, especially out of their mouths. Um, there's even like a really great scene where the one guy um, is like vomiting it out of his mouth and it lands on a woman's umbrella and the woman's like, oh, that poor little bird who ran into my umbrella. <laughs> <laughs> They can't tell, you know, the high-rises because of the windows. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it's so phony looking, too, the parasite. Like, when you see it move, it's obviously just rubber on wires. Yeah, I mean, you can see the wires completely. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, again, they basically shot the whole thing in one hallway, for the most part. Like, you can't tell me that every hallway that's shown in this movie is not the same fucking hallway. I mean, sure. it's got it. But, like, the ending scene with the pool and everything, I think, is such a creepy, cool scene. Like, when he's running up the hill and all of them are coming at him, you know, and they're all fucking juiced up and horned up. 
but yeah, it does leave a lot to be desired too. This movie, like, I I don't want to see more graphic scenes of sexual assault and things like that. Like in this, you mostly get just people grinding on each other and then it cuts away. Yeah. Um, Thankfully, especially when the child ends up getting infected and it's just like a kiss. Oh, okay. I'm just like, that's all I needed. Yep. I completely agree. I'm good with just that. That yeah. is enough. Even that's a little much. Huh. But, so it's like, <laughs> it could have been so much worse. And then they allude to that. The girl who's been passing it to everybody is only like in her teens. Mm hmm. And you're like, okay. Yeah. I mean, obviously she's not because they show her nude and stuff, but just the implication, you're like, oh, fuck, it's Christ. But yeah, I wouldn't want any more than what they give you. I mean, maybe as far as, uh, I don't know, man, a little more character development or something like that could have definitely helped. Uh, but for a first-time feature, I mean, there's still some good here, I think. I mean, it's not the worst first time feature i've ever seen is it the worst of cronenberg's uh oeuvre no i don't think so i would also say that's probably because of cosmopolis yeah but you know it's it's the worst of his body horror i mean probably for sure but even then i do agree that i do see some interesting elements in here particularly you mentioned lynn lowry he might recognize from the original george Romero crazies and some other genre films of the 70s and i think she i agree is very beautiful but also she has this distinctive brow that feels like so unsettling when you see her, like especially head on. Yeah, it's, like the the shape of her eyes, yeah, and the eyebrows, and I, like she is, it's almost feline like. Yes, it's yeah, it's very sort of it's beautiful when she's supposed to be beautiful, but when she's infective, it's intimidating and scary. And they don't do anything; they just they take away some makeup. That's basically it. But yeah, what what, how, what did you think of the doctor, the main doctor, the lead? Um, I thought he was sort of serviceable. I think he's definitely kind of like a, a solid lead to anchor, like, finding out about, like, all the parasites going around and all this other stuff. I think it's just more a lot of the side characters that I was intrigued by. Honestly, like we mentioned, um, there's the one dude, uh, Robert Moldozik, who was in a lot of Cronenberg's earlier movies, like Rabid or even Stereo, which was his experimental college movie that we almost did. And I'm glad we didn't do, because <laughs> it's really long and dull. Um, but he also has this weird distinctiveness, where he's sort of the first example of a Cronenberg person who's sort of fascinated by his body. Like, the one sort of curiosity element I found is the bit where he's in his room and the uh, parasite is worming around his stomach, and you can clearly see it, and he's kind of fascinated, like, Oh my god, what the fuck is this thing? It's kind of hot. <laughs> hey, come on, boy, you and me. You're like, what the fuck, dude? This is weird. <laughs> you know what, though? He's got a, such a distinctive look about him, too. He reminds me a lot of the main from uh, Scanners. Yeah. And I, I think Cronenberg just likes that look on guys, but that's also kind of that's what Cronenberg kind of looks like. True. Oh, skinny with the big hair and just sort of sunken in eyes or big bulgy eyes. I mean, it's and, very and, and even the specific nose shape looks very Cronenberg-esque. Exa- well. Exactly. So it's almost like he casts, you know, tries to get somebody who looks like him, uh, which is probably true. I, you know, there's definitely a sense of vanity to a lot of Cronenberg work too. But even like the casting of the female actresses, like Lynn Lowry, mm-hmm. also we should mention Barbara Steele is in this movie, who you would know from Black Sunday, of course. Yep with her distinctive brow as well. I think th- that's the thing, is you can see a lot of, like, not just the thematic elements, but also his sort of um, proclivities for casting in terms of women. Like, you can see so much of, like, what would later come up with even, like, Agena Davis or uh, Blondie in video drama, yeah. to an extent. He likes casting men and women who have very distinctive features that aren't necessarily common amongst, like, movie stars. Yeah, they're not... 
right, exactly. He he likes to fill his his cast with unconventionally good-looking people, to where they're right. alluring for some reason, and you can't sometimes can't even put your finger on it. But to go back to the doctor, the, my favorite part about the doctor is when he's in his doctor's office and he's examining the patients, and he has really good sort of back and forth banter with the patients and things like that. He feels like the cool doctor, like yeah, I like my doctor. He's a nice guy. So then I like him, and I like him when he goes and sees the other guy, and then the pickled bit and all that stuff. But yeah, once it the shit starts hitting the fan, I, I kind of like he snaps pretty quick. Like mm-hmm. he, he straight up kills, like starts killing guys. Like and you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> like I guess I get it because it's a self, but you could have just knocked the guy out. He didn't have to beat his brains in with a crowbar. <laughs> You know, or shoot the one guy in the back, or you could have just pulled him off. Like, it's it's a little, he goes a little nutso pretty fast. Which I think is sort of a distinctive trait of Cronenberg's protagonists in general, is they kind of like to jump to doing, like, some of this more dangerous behavior after a certain point. I guess that's another thing, is that with a his protagonists, they tend to be people who are, like, seemingly normal, seemingly kind of nondescript, and then the moment anything changes, they really latch on. Um, and you can see that even from here all the way to, I think that describes very well, like James Woods in Videodrome, or Jeff Goldblum in The Fly, or even we'll get to our next feature with Jeremy Irons and how that's very much the case. Yeah, I definitely think he's got a fascination of what a normal person, what, what extremes they would go to put in, put in an extreme situation. Or just like how much would you have to push like a timid person to just act out and lash out. Uh, I, I definitely think he's sort of into that idea. And again, that's why I alluded to, I think there's a lot of vanity in Cronenberg's work. Cause I think a lot of his leads are based on somewhat parts of his personality as far as sexual proclivity and maybe even wanting to be violent sometimes and things like that. I definitely, you could definitely tell, you know, he takes a bit of himself and puts it into everything he's, he does rather writing or directing. Well, vanity, but also I would say a bit of honesty about some of like his darker sensibilities at the same time. Sure. Where there feels like he definitely puts himself out there on the screen, but definitely in a case of, like, for all good and bad intensive purposes. But also there's a lot of, like, the satiric intent in here as well that would later be a very recurring factor with, like, this actual building. Which I love the fact that it starts off with this really lame infomercial and how it's even, like, the opening sequence is a couple being toured around. Our sort of, like, main test subject couple, ultimately the first encounters the parasite, are like, oh yeah, we have these lovely sort of apartments and there's a swimming pool area and all this stuff cut in between our sort of big first sexual assault sequence that ultimately becomes this weird, like, doctor operating sequence. Um, which initially, obviously, it's like very off color in a way. It's like, oh, I don't know about this with the sexual assault. But then when he starts operating on her, it becomes this like really what the fuck sort of his first example of body horror in one of his movies where he like opens her up and then starts putting things in her. It's so well done because they don't show anything. Yeah. Like they literally, you see it from the side where he runs, you assume the scalpel down her, and then he's just pu- he's pushing on her to open her up. And all he's doing is pushing that girl's skin to the side. Like, literally, like, moving her body. And it, and, there, and there's a bit of stage blood, but that's it. Yeah, and it's super effective. Super, super effective. And then he dumps acid inside her. You're like, good lord. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and that thing, too, that opening bit where they're showing the apartment complex and everything, I just, I got a very good vibe that Romero sort of bit that. <laughs> like, the way it's shot, even for Dawn of the Dead yeah. and even Land of the Dead with the Fiddler Green thing where they're showing it, you know, all the shopping you could want and all that stuff. It f- reminds me very much of this. 
No, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. It feels definitely sort of like he's a contemporary. Many wouldn't consider him that, just because he oh. sort of got more famous post Dawn of the Dead. But even this early, you can see that he was like he worked in the same way, contemporary way of the Romero. Though I would argue, even in his movies that aren't you know very subtle, I would argue he has at least a bit more tact than Romero would have at times with some of the satire that's going on. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I definitely agree. But you hit some on the head there, where there is so much satire going on in this film alone, where it is, it's so much about just yuppies and repressed sexuality, and I, I mean it parasites alone both figuratively and literally it, it's it, but it and it's right there though but i never felt like it beats you over the head with it either i think it's it's sort of becomes the cliche for most zombie movies this idea whether not not necessarily he was the first to do it but it, it's sort of a repeating cliche where you know the right. zombies are the the yuppie scum and blah 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 well, well, no, but it's also kind of interesting because people rarely talk about sort of the movies that came out in the immediate wake of Night of the Living Dead, where it's like, this is not even 10 years removed from Night of the Living Dead. And you can see yeah. the influence that's here, obviously, but also you can see the fact that it's going for a bit of a grimier aesthetic, a grindhouse 70s era aesthetic that feels, once again, more akin to like what would Cronenberg would later become. And do you see sort of a development, especially from like this to Rabbit to some, like even The Brood, which would be his last film of the seventies before he really started hitting? Oh yeah, definitely. If you watch this and then turn on The Brood, obviously it's made by the same guy, but he's gone leaps and bounds as far as even technique and storytelling. Camera work uses a storytelling device and, and framing and things like that. Honestly, that's the thing about Cronenberg that I really like. For most of his films, from one to the next, you can see where a new trick he learned or something he's honed a little more for the next film or he's perfected maybe something he was trying. Like, it's it's kind of remarkable. Like, every movie is distinctively Cronenberg, but every movie is distinctively Cronenberg at that exact moment. Yeah, you get a real sense of the development, for sure, uh-huh. as things go along. And do you feel maybe uh, the Kenyan government was maybe right in questioning um, its moral value to a certain extent here? Do, do you feel like it really was like so subversive for the era? I mean, sure. I, I, I guess it is subversive for the era, but we're talking about film, and we're talking about, you know, you're giving somebody money to make a film, to make an art. I mean, all films, all art is subjective. You, you don't buy into something and like blindly and they get mad at the outcome. Like eh, that's a little ridiculous. If they didn't know what they were making, if they didn't know the type of movie he was making, then that's their fault, not his. No. Yeah. I think it definitely came from sort of the naivete of the Canadian film industry that, like I said, according to Cronenberg, at least was most known for doing nature documentaries. How many documentaries about moose do you need to see? <laughs> hey, 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 there's moose, there's beavers, there's platypuses. Yeah, the beavers would be really mad if they heard me. Hey, we live here too, buddy. The anti-beaver defamation league is after you, Adam. How dare you, friend? We live here too. I forgive you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, but that's that's something too about Cronenberg. You know, he's he's very distinctly un-American as well. Mm -hmm. Like it's very very distinct. His movies would not be the same if he was born you know 200 miles south of where he was it's pretty remarkable the movie kind of almost feels like it's a um commentary on the inherent politeness of these canadians or that stereotype and how that ultimately becomes like subverted with like these people becoming sex craved lunatic monsters like the i mentioned earlier the scene with the two old biddies 
who are talking about the bird, like, oh, the poor bird. Meanwhile, like, weird sexual assault orgies are going on inside this apartment complex. It, it's sort of like almost talking about repressed sexuality in its own weird way. Cronenberg is very much talking about the idea of, like, these people ultimately are, like, stuck in one location together, and this parasite is a catalyst for them going mad and crazy, but in this very, unfortunately, sexually assaulty kind of way. It, it feels like there's definitely a lot going on that he's... Um, you know, would later cover much better, I would argue, in his other films. But um, it's interesting seeing the origin of it here. Yeah, I, yeah, I definitely agree with you. You, you. Like you said, you know, you sort of see the groundwork of what would come later and sort of be defined and, you know, arguably perfected. Yeah, I mean, um, I pretty much said my final thoughts. Any other final thoughts on Shivers, Adam? Uh, you know, it, it's the first sort of glance, first sort of watch. It, it's almost a stereotypical zombie film in a way. I mean, obviously it's a parasite and it's done through sexual stuff but it's still a zombie movie i mean basically uh but it's kind of cool to go back and see sort of the beginning and like like we just said the foundation of you know i would say inarguably one of the modern day horror masters if you're a completionist it's yeah, uh, pr- then, pretty required viewing for uh, his career right. in general but uh, here we go now with uh, his 1988 film dead ringers ladies and gentlemen dr beverly mantle by every scientific measure, they are absolutely the same. You haven't had any experience until I've had it too. You mean to say there's two of them? They're twins, dear. From David Cronenberg, who in The Fly made the fantastic real. Now makes reality the ultimate fantasy. Dead ringers. Separation can be a, a terrifying thing. So, Dead Ringers came out September 23rd, 1988, and uh, was directed by Cronenberg, written by him and a guy named Norman Snyder, who we knew from his early days in Canada, based on the novel Twins by Barlwood and uh, Jack Geesland. This was actually a novel based on a true story about two actual twin doctors um, who end up being found in a sort of drug-induced state, dead, um, just like covered, like uh, it was Stewart and Cyril Marcus who were found uh, in Manhattan. And this is very interesting because this is coming off of after, you know, a shivers, he get made stuff like Rabbit and The Brood and Video Drama and The Fly. So really had gone through his body horror kind of phase as a director. And Cronenberg has said this, and I kind of agree with him. This feels like sort of his in-between movie, where he's saying farewell to the horror genre and kind of going into the perverted drama genre he would do a lot in the 90s so it's interesting you pick this one as your sort of one for our halloween horror episode happy halloween everybody uh so let's talk about this depressing drama about twins who uh, have a drug addiction adam <laughs> <laughs> uh I, well the reason i picked this one is what a tour de force performance uh by jeremy irons i'd argue that it's the best sort of case of one actor playing twin brothers in one movie i i, I mean it's absolutely I can just spellbinding to me. I, I am in, absolutely in love with this movie because of Jeremy Irons. And it's, it's fucking depressing, yes, but it's also fucking creepy and makes your skin crawl. And it's very unnerving, and it makes you feel very uneasy, but that's the point of it. And man, does it nail it on every level for the most part. I mean, it's absolutely almost a perfect film and it's it's horror but not in the typical way that cronenberg does horror it's horror because of what the fuck is happening to these two brothers and what they're doing to people it's fucking just so 
that's that. Put that on the box. It's very good. How do you spell G-U-G-H-H-W-A-A-A. But yeah, I picked this because this is also one that's, you know, as far as the Cronenberg films, when people talk about it, this one doesn't come up that often. It's mostly the fly video drone and, uh, you know, sometimes rabbit and, and things like that. But this is not one that's really discussed often. And I think it absolutely deserves a place near the top of his filmography. Yeah, I would agree that it's not quite a horror movie, but it feels like it has a lot of the aesthetics of it. I think the most overtly horror sequence is one where it, his farewell to the body horror uh, subgenre with the dream sequence in which both the brothers are being torn apart from the Siamese connection um, during uh. <laughs> that really upsetting dream sequence, but also even a lot of the aesthetic stuff, like when we get into the weird tools that they use or the design of the gowns that they wear whenever they're in the operating theater, which I love. I love the look of those, like, and how they're blood red and how unsettling they look in the adorned light. And even when Jeremy Irons is, like, getting one of them put on as one of the, the brothers, it looks like a weird cult ceremony donning of the robes at the same time. I think it's because these two brothers, who we should mention, the basic premise is uh, Beverly and Elliot Mantle are two uh, doctors who mainly work as gynecologists, well-renowned uh, for their gynecology work, and one of them is um, sort of the brainier one that sticks with being uh, more of an overt personal uh, doctor to his patients, Beverly, versus Elliot, who is more of just, like, trying to kind of rise up in the medical field and kind of move on from the practice that they share. Um, but at the same time, both brothers have lived together for so long, and they're kind of inseparable to a degree where they kind of switch off on being with women. Uh, go ahead. No, pretty unsettling, yes. Uh, particularly with the Claire character, uh, Geneva Bujold, um, who is a French actress I really haven't seen other things, but I think is phenomenal in this movie. It's a great example of just like showcasing these two Doctor characters and how they've kind of gone away with so much that they're willing to sort of be careless with other people's lives, and how one of them kind of realizes that and falls apart as a person, while the other one is trying to say like, hey man, come on, let's keep this going, bro. Let's screw right. other people. We're, we're trying to be totally great. It's like, I have empathy now. Oh, fuck that shit. Why do you need empathy? dude. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, Elliot's, well, they're both pieces of shit, let's be honest. Right, no, they, they are, both, yes. They're absolutely awful. Elliot's the more, more outwardly piece of shit. But, yeah, they're both just horrible people. I mean, they basically rape women. Uh, I mean, completely. Yeah. And yet, they inspire sympathy. Like, you can't tell me that you didn't kind of feel bad for Beverly. Well, I think it's the thing of, like, Beverly has realized his wrong, and it doesn't make him, like, immediately, like, oh, this poor man, we have to respect him so much. It makes him more of an interesting figure that's not necessarily all the way tragic, but not all the way, like, um, this monster I can't see any humanity. And I think that's what's so interesting about uh, yes. the performance that Jeremy Irons has as both these characters. And I think almost a lot of it comes from, with, like, Cronenberg writing this, I almost interpret it as kind of, like, it's him kind of getting his problems with being, like, a director fully on display and working within an industry that kind of, like, tosses people around with, like, uh, the two brothers, where Beverly is more of, like, the creative type that also doesn't always respect the performers or the crew as much as they should, versus Elliot is, like, the overt producer doesn't give a shit at all. It feels like it's two sides of the coin to filmmaking to me. And I think that's what makes it, I think, have, you know, sort of this... Kramer putting a lot of personal introspection to both those characters. 
Yeah, I, I'd say that's pretty accurate, uh, or at least an accurate take on it. I, I don't know that I ever thought of it like that. I definitely did feel like it was sort of two conflicting of his own personality quirks or you know personas going against each other. I definitely felt that. And I, I think you're probably absolutely 100% accurate on that. Again, you know, that's why I do this show. That's why you make the big bucks. You're the brains. <laughs> Patreon.com slash D-E-D-B pod. <laughs> you, you would be the Elliot. Um, uh, ooh. Uh, oh, that's such a diss. <laughs> ooh. I don't, well, what, do you want to be the Beverly? I don't want to be either of them, but I prefer yeah, Beverly I between the two. Be yeah, yeah. But, the, you know, the, the one scene in this movie that really fucked me, like, it really got me, like, oh, uh, when he's performing uh, the exam on the one woman and she's complaining it's hurting. Yes. And you, I mean, it's instantly, you're like, oh, you horrible monster. You awful, awful person. The things he says to her, the way he acts with her, the tool he's using on her, and yet it's her fault that it hurts. Like, it's just, it's so unnerving and disgusting and instantly made me, like, go right back to fuck you, Beverly mode feel bad for him a little bit and then he pulls that shit and you're like oh no he's gone yes because this is at a point where he was he's firmly in sort of his drug addiction craze as well um but i do love the fact that like it's also from so much vanity because the tool they're using is the mantle like device or whatever they invented back in college that they yep. sort of got a lot of praise for and it was literally named after them this big tool and it's like well but uh, lady you can't complain this is hurting this is one of the most brilliant devices ever created because we created it yeah it's a gold-plated mantle tool yes okay like so and then you know he gets confronted and uh, you know he's like that's not supposed to be used for interior examination right there's nothing wrong with the tool she's a mutant so then he starts just like it's fucked up it's so crazy and the tools that he invents are like all very bone like looking like it's really just nah man (laughs) which i think further emphasizes kind of like that um filmmaking theory i have about it because it kind of feels like Cronenberg wrestling with body horror because it's all about these guys who are so fascinated with like specifically exploring this one orifice in women and how, like, they like they even say, like, we don't uh, treat husbands at all. We only treat women here. And they, they have these specific tools they use and everything to display it. It's kind of like him confronting his uh, sort of uh, fascination with body horror, coming off especially of The Fly, his masterpiece in that regard of just, like, horrible, weird body horror effects and how they just completely destroy people. And this is almost kind of, like, really an examination on it in terms of being the doctor, the orchestrator of that kind of thing. It's just like, oh, man, am I fucked up? And then him kind of accepting it, like, yeah, I'm fucked up. Let me make Crash. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, that's pretty accurate. Yeah, maybe there's something wrong with me. The technology that they used to uh, sort of have Jeremy Irons share screen with himself is still some of the best that's ever been done. Right, which was, was, it's the same kind of, like, motion-controlled camera work that would later be used on, like, the Back to the Future sequels, whenever multiple Michael J. Foxes would show up and stuff. And I would say 99% of it is great, and there's only one moment where I kind of noticed the effects were kind of fading, but in a way that was interesting to me. There's that one scene where it's the two of them walking together, and Beverly's in the red t-shirt, 
and uh, oh. Elliot is in the suit, and there's a point where she's like, oh, I'm just going to go off to the right here, and Elliot kind of fades away, which I think is an issue of the technology, but it almost yes. works this sort of, like, element of, like, the two uh, doctors are kind of drifting apart from each other. The two brothers are not, like, as close at this point. They're kind of drifting off, and they realize, oh, we have to be closer together as the movie goes along to their complete destruction. Complete and utter destruction, I mean. Yeah. In every sense of the word. But yeah, I, I absolutely think, I mean, it's just kind of remarkable the way it looks and the way, how they did it. And I, I do think in its depressing state that the movie is and how sort of gross a lot of the ideas are and really unnerving and sketchy and everything, it's still kind of a fucking beautiful movie. Like, about just tragedy and the just the length ego can take you. It's, in a really twisted way, a really, really beautiful movie. No, and I think a big part of that is not just the technology, but also, the, as you mentioned, the Jeremy Irons' performance as these two characters is so phenomenal, where he does such a delicate job of making sure that, like, these two initially seem so distinct, but having enough similarities between the two to when, as the movie goes along and you kind of blur the lines between who is who because they both become the same piece of shit, specifically by the end of the movie, he does such a phenomenal job of balancing all that. And it's it's interesting, especially he was not the first choice. They originally wanted, they went to uh, Robert De Niro and William Hurt, who ended up both turning it down. Do you feel that either of them would have been able to accomplish something near this? De Niro could have probably done it. He was at his prime. Well, not necessarily his prime, but he was still fucking hitting it big during this time. Uh, but I couldn't see De Niro as this character. Like I, I to me, it, it doesn't make sense. William Hurt, I could see as Beverly, but even but then as Elliot, I wouldn't. It doesn't make sense to me for some reason. And I really love both of those actors. Uh, I think Jeremy Irons, and it, maybe it is on the strength of his performance because he does fucking nail it. But I think he's absolutely the right pick for the role. Yeah, I think it's because Jeremy Irons has always had this great effect to me of being both an extremely gentlemanly figure. But also, every time he ends up being, like, a sleazy piece of shit, like, I'm always concerned, like, yeah, I get it. I think it maybe have to do with, like, the first exposure yep. I ever had to him was, like, Scar from The Lion King. Like, oh, I'm a distinctive gentleman, but I'm a massive tool <laughs> at the same time. Mm -hmm. I think my first time I saw Jeremy Irons was, well, probably Scar from The Lion King as well. Uh, I mean, maybe something before that, but I really remember him from uh, the third Die Hard. Right, of course. Yes, as uh, Simon... Yeah. Yep, Simon. And he's fantastic in that, too. Yes. Uh, you know, when he does an American accent, it's one of the funniest things I've ever heard because he cannot pull that off. But um, it's, it's yeah, he's he's so good. And like I said, he there are very distinct differences between the two performances. But like you said, once they get into the drugs and everything, he, there's still scenes in this movie, and I've seen it, I don't know, three, four times now, where I'm still like, wait, which one is... Is this Beverly or is this Elliot? Like, especially at the end. And, and they're calling each other by the, you know, the names of the first conjoined twins. You're like, wait, who's on the table? Like, it's kind of like, it sort of messes with your mind a little bit. And I think, obviously, I think that is the point. It, but even then, though, when they, when they sort of become the same as far as the drug addiction and everything, they're still sort of, you could still distinguish the two in ways. Like, he's, he's really good at nuance 
and sort of quirks. Right, and I think a lot of that also has to do with like the interactions they have with some of the other cast members. I think particularly we mentioned her, but uh, Bejold is so phenomenal as Claire. Where you and instantly... I have no idea who she is. I have no idea who she is. I've yeah, never seen a... her. Yeah, I haven't seen much of her other stuff. She was a French actress before this. But I love the fact that she, she comes off as a woman who is so very mature, but has this obviously like point that Beverly and Elliot are kind of hinging on to try and sleep with her. Of just like, oh, I really want to become a mother, but I might be infertile. And I have this sort of, ultimately, this um, issue where she has like the um, three-chambered womb. And ultimately, they determine to be a mutation, quote-unquote. And they prey on her a lot with that in a way where you can see why she's disgusted, but at the same time you can see why she kind of like comes back to Beverly after a certain point because she can see that humanity in him and she wants him to kind of like get past his brother, but he can't. And there's a lot of tragedy in that relationship that I really think it's complex in a way that feels very interesting. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. Like I said, I've I don't know her. I don't know that I've ever even seen anything she's been in, but she's really good and i love that the fact that she owns the fact that she's promiscuous and she owns the fact that i still have to go to work i know you're here fucked up but i have a job i have to leave for 10 weeks like she's still a very very strong character she has her own agency as a person yeah and it's really kind of cool man like where she sets up the sort of the meet the both of them at the same time and she just calls them both on their fucking bullshit right away yeah like she it's it's pretty it's a pretty powerhouse of performance. Like it's pretty phenomenal. No, oh, yeah, I, I completely agree. And you can see why someone like a Beverly could like fall for her and why he would like eventually just like break up when he realizes like, Oh my God, I'm such a fucking monster. Meanwhile, Elliot just being like, whatever, bro. Is that love when you feel intense sadness over you fucking up around your, <laughs> let's have a three way. And you're like, Oh God, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm king. No, it's a... Long live the king. (laughs) (laughs) That's so stupid. Yes, holy moly. (laughs) But anyways, and ultimately you feel the worst for her in the movie. To where, like, when she comes back and she wants to see Beverly again and he thinks, like, she's been cheating on him, but it's really her homosexual secretary that answered the phone. Like, he tells the secretary, like, you know, lube up your fingers and you'll find three cervixes and all that. And you're like, oh my god, you piece of shit. Yep, especially when she was very much like, hey, don't tell anybody about this. Yeah, please don't tell anybody. Right, exactly. Doctor-patient confidentiality, what the fuck is that? Uh, right, right out the fucking window. Well, that pretty much goes out the window when they're fucking tag-teaming girls without them knowing. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's, morals are pretty much gone in this movie. But uh, ultimately, you know, she comes back and she still loves Beverly and she still wants to help him. But, it, uh, you know, it sort of becomes too much for her. Where she finds these tools and, and things like that. And she's like, what the fuck is this? Yeah, the, the degradation awesome. of Beverly and eventually Elliot after a certain point. I think that's where you get the most sort of empathy you could possibly have for these two monstrous characters. Where Beverly's just going so far gone and how much his addiction is really crumbling him. Particularly when he is in the middle of that operating room scene and he really oh. wants the drugs. And he ends up like puncturing that woman as they're operating. Yeah, almost killed her. Yep. With that horrible bone blade thing. Oh my god. And also, when he finds them in an art gallery later, he's like, these are my tools. These are mine. And he takes them back. Oh god. 
But like some like the operating scenes, like it's definitely like, oh my god, you're an awful monster. But it's like you see at the same time his addiction is completely over encompassing him. So it leads to like once again what Cronenberg loves doing, which is creating these characters that are incredibly complex, despite the fact that they you know have these horrific proclivities and eventually the aesthetics are so horrific as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, like and you brought it up earlier, but I love that the operating things almost look like stark red, you know, even mm-hmm. not non outfits and things like that. It's pretty fantastic, dude. And even the production design in general, as things even degradate, like I love the look of their office and how sleek and particularly like eight late eighties yuppie it looks. But eventually how all that comes crumbling down with like the use of garbage when oh, when they're I, at their lowest point. It, it's just like Jesus fucking Christ, you're living in filth. And just, you know, how Elliot, you know, ultimately gets himself addicted to drugs so he can be like with Beverly and be in the same mindset as him so that way they can get clean together because that's the only way it's going to work. And just how much of a baby he is basically at the last scene where, you know, he wants cake and orange pop and ice cream and he starts getting emotional because they don't have ice cream. And he doesn't even realize it's his birthday. Like at this point, Beverly's become almost the clean one where Elliot spiraled off even further. It's fucking crazy. And the ending of this movie is fucking wild. Oh God. The way that like, after like the sort of operation scene happens, probably the biggest body horror thing that happens in reality of the movie. They still really don't show you during the operation. They don't. And then the most you see of it is when, um, Beverly gets up and starts whimpering about Elliot. Elliot. Yeah, El- you see like his yeah. fucking torso has been taken off or something. It's like, Jesus fucking Christ. What happened? <laughs> But it's also out of focus in the background. Right. Like, they yes. never show it full on. Like, it. But that's enough. That's more than enough. So, th- that actually right. brings me to, like, a big question. Do you feel like this is him kind of transitioning out of body horror into sort of, like, the prestige but still fucked up dramas he would do in the 90s? Yes. I mean, without a doubt. Yeah, I think this is sort of his love letter to that genre and his sort of send off and also his message to the general sort of public, like I'm going to be stepping away and doing something different now, but it's still fucked up, <laughs> still incredibly fucked up, but it's not going to be a VCR in a stomach anymore. Like it's pretty crazy, you know? And then you would get existence with the, the bone gun or whatever the fuck that is. The teeth that shoots teeth, just so stupid. But anyways, yeah, I absolutely think this is sort of his, he is owed to the genre that made him famous and his sort of closing the book on it. Well, I would say like the fly is sort of his big final, like climactic example. And then dead ringers is like the uh, PS. I love you letter <laughs> that he leaves to the genre as he exists. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Though also naked lunch kind of has a lot of that too, in its own weird way. <laughs> and it's all, yeah. In a completely different way though. Like naked yeah. lunch is just czar fucking. Yep. Something we didn't mention with the initial movie because uh, he hadn't started collaborating with this person at the time, but uh, this is um, another great collaboration between him and Howard Shore, who would do the scores for all his movies from The Brood all the way to Maps to the Stars, who was like a famous uh, composer that would win Oscars for like the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Also, interestingly, the first band leader of Saturday Night Live during the Not Ready for Primetime Players era. Yeah, he's all right. He's done some okay stuff. <laughs> I mean, I would say his masterpiece with Cronenberg is the Fly score. I love the score for yeah, the Fly so much. But this is like another example of like him kind of going a bit more subtle in an interesting way, where like there are big bombastic kind of moments, but he plays a lot of the tragedy, especially like as the movie ends, the score becomes almost so melancholy and upsetting, but in a very subtle way that I think he kind of he plays to a lot of Cronenberg's strengths whenever he does the scores. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree. He, well, it's another, you know, Cronenberg definitely uses the score to enforce what point he's trying to get across. And it, Howard Shore and him have such an amazing sort of chemistry as far as filmmaker and composer. It's, it's pretty fucking awesome. But I guess let's go into our final thoughts here on Dead Ringers. Adam, your final thoughts. I mean, I think it's an Oscar-worthy performance by Jeremy Irons. I think he—I don't even think he was nominated. He should have—he should have at least been in contention. Well, and I heard a big reason he later won for Reversal of Fortune was kind of like a makeup for it. Even though I've heard that performance is great, it is. It's really good, but yeah, it, it's—it's it's not this. Absolutely, can see that being the case. But yeah, it, it's an absolute tour de force performance by him. Not only him, but also the main female lead. It's depressing. It's dark. It's gross. It's skeevy. It's uncomfortable, but it's totally worth the journey to get through it. Like it's it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal movie, and it's not overtly long, but it's worth it. Every minute that's on screen is necessary. And also, before I give my final thoughts, how do you feel about? Apparently, they're uh, Amazon announced that they're doing a TV series with Rachel Weisz as a female version of this these characters. How do you feel about that? I hate to be the no remake guy. You know, because, well, I guess, you know what? Who gives a shit? I don't have to watch it. It's, they got this. I, I don't have high hopes for it. Let's put it that way. I, I don't think that this sort of movie or story could have been told by anybody but the people that were involved in it. Uh, so, I mean, I guess we'll see. I like Rachel Weisz. She's a very capable actress. I don't really have a problem with the gender switching. Like, it doesn't it doesn't matter. I mean, the fact that Elliot and Beverly are boys, it, really, in the grand scheme of things, their sex or their gender doesn't really matter. A female doctor could easily be doing the exact same things they're doing. So, you know, I guess we'll see. I can see developing this over the course of, like, a series, though, as opposed to a feature. If it was another, like, film remake, I would have be much more... I'd have way you. more problems. Yeah, I'd have way more right. problems with it if it was a straight remake. As opposed to, like, a TV series kind of developing these characters and seeing them their progression over a bit longer period. I could see that being interesting. Um, I could see them kind of doing something. Nothing else. Also, Rachel Weisz being cast, I think, has the most fascinating potential with it because uh, you got to get somebody who's pretty damn phenomenal to be able to do such a thing she fits the bill pretty solidly for me uh, my final thoughts i would agree that i think this is more underrated amongst cronenberg's greater movies i would say my favorites of his are still probably the fly videodrome and this is a very solid third entry for sure on that um i think it's uh, such a tour de force like you said for jeremy irons and the technology that's being used to like put him in the same scene um using doubles and also that kind of trick photography i think they do a phenomenal job with that um but also just kind of like we mentioned having that satirical intent about these two doctors who we start off the movie seeing them as young kids and then immediately trying to suggest sex with this younger girl when they're both all three of them are like eight years old or some shit like that um, seeing that they're very intelligent on a clinical level, but on an emotional level, they are very unintelligent. Cronenberg does such a great job of really like putting all of his proclivities on display here, but also managing to evolve his style into something that's not quite a horror movie, but has a lot of the aesthetics that make it a horrifying film. All the same, uh, but yeah, if you so if you haven't seen it, we spoiled it, <laughs> but definitely. Uh, Give it a chance, for sure. It's uh, definitely one to seek out, especially if you like Cronenberg and you kind of want to see the evolution from the 80s and 70s and 80s body horror to the weird, fucked-up dramas he would do in the 90s. Uh, it's a key, important piece of his career. And we should also note, it is streaming right now on Prime. Right, and also a big thing, um, this is tied with Naked Lunch for being his longest movie, and it's not even two hours long. 
Right, which is crazy. Cronenberg made very short and efficient movies with so much fucked up ideas in them. <laughs> but uh, that is the end of our features we're discussing for the evening. But uh, we have some picking to do for our next episode at the end of this one, so stay tuned. Until then, though, we have uh, some feedback to read. Because over at DEDB Pod, where every Monday we share a feeler about, like, hey, what are your favorite least favorite movies related to whatever topic we're doing? We ask you about your favorites and least favorites related to the topic of the particular episode. And uh, we all asked you all about David Cronenberg movies. So, so first up, we have uh, James Rodriguez who says, uh, The Fly is a gruesome masterpiece with a touching emotional core. Uh, Videodrome is a one-of-a-kind piece of excellence. Brood, I was not ready for that. Great film that needs more kids getting punched in the face. Uh, Maps of the Stars holds nothing back with Hollywood satire, but feels so familiar. And uh, Scanners peeks at the head-exploding scene, and then we're stuck in a clunky mess with a wooden lead. Hey Zeus says, History of Violence is my personal favorite. Uh, the Scanners head-exploding is my favorite gif. Uh, the Fly is my fave Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis comedy. And my least favorite, probably Cosmopolis or something dumb like that. And then uh, Stephen D. at WaitingFTH on Twitter says, uh, Best for me, Shivers, Dead Zone, and Dead Ringers. I think uh, his latter films can veer towards dull, but I enjoy the aesthetics and pacing regardless. I'd also argue his films are personal in that they work through his preoccupations. His novel, Consumed, is pure Cronenberg as far as that goes. But yeah, how do you feel especially about sort of his later career, Adam, his post-body horror period that would happen in the 90s and 2000s? I mean, I really did. I do dig History of Violence. I absolutely love Eastern Promises. I think it's fucking just, what a phenomenal film. I'm pretty much a fan of pretty much all Cronenberg, except for Cosmopolis. Not really into but yeah, you pretty much put Cronenberg's name on anything. I'll, I'll try it. I wasn't crazy about the Dangerous Method. It was okay. Like, it was well acted, but, you know, it is what it is. Like I said, I, I think he's definitely one of the greatest as far as genre filmmakers. And he's easily one of the greatest just straight-up filmmakers of at least the generation uh, that he's from. And, you know, my generation, your generation. He's one of the best living, I think. Uh, you know, he's done some very, very crazy batshit stuff but he's never really compromised he's always made the movies that he wants to make even when he does more studio movies like the dead zone which we didn't talk about but that was another one i saw very early like was famous at the time but not like as prolific with the stephen king adaptations i love the dead zone i do too i think the series sort of did that though yeah where people people when you think of the dead zone they think of that anthony michael hall series more than the Christopher Walken movie. But yes, I absolutely love The Dead Zone as well. I think it's just phenomenal. That's one of my favorite Walken moments with the ice is gonna break. I know. It's so good. And even the few sort of like horror moments we get like with the guy with the scissors is like, it's also, it's one of those examples where it's not like as overt, but like you only see like him going down the scissors and you're like, oh my God, you fill in the blanks. And also it's weird that Martin Sheen became so famous in the West Wing for playing like a great president. And this movie no. plays like the worst possible <laughs> president. No, I, I love the Dead Zone, and, and it, it stacks up for many reasons. You know, a Cronenberg, B Stephen King, and C Walken. Uh, yeah, that's definitely what I feel doesn't get enough love, at least nowadays. Well, and also um, a Videodrome. I remember when I saw it in high school after seeing The Fly, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is such a great movie! I need to see more Cronenberg movies." I was like, "Okay, the the body horror stuff is cool in this, but I don't know if I'm like as interested in what's going on. It feels kind of like really confused and weird." And then I saw it a few years ago, and I went into like an impressed depression with it. 
where I'm like, oh, this movie's amazing, but it's so accurate to, like, right now on so many thematic levels, but especially our relationship with technology and how it's so close. It's just like, oh my god, this is so great, I want to crawl into a hole. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how I feel about Video Drone, man. I, I, sometimes I really like it, sometimes I'm like, I don't want to watch that. But I think that's the point. I think for the same reason. Where sometimes it's so depressing. And other times, you know, James Woods. Well, that's a weird one where I do agree that I think it's obviously it's hard to watch anything with James Woods in it now. But I think at the same time, that's one of those movies where kind of like when if you watch like some movies where Kevin Spacey plays a piece of shit now, it almost ages better now. Knowing that it's like, oh, so we're following this guy who's a horrible manipulative piece of shit that uses technology to his own means to try and attract people to this sort of weird cult of personality. This new flesh, if you will. Um, it feels like it's almost uh, predictive. It was very prescient in a very upsetting way. Yeah, 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 I think, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and The Brood, we talked about a bit, but The Brood has one of my most, like, uncomfortable sequences in any movie that I don't think gets enough love with that one, where um, there's a sequence where, if you don't know, the basic premise is, like, The Brood is, like, a group of children that are born... Um, that have this, like, weird demonic possession element to them. And there's a sequence where a bunch of them are in a kindergarten class, and they're with real children, but they kill the teacher in front of, like, the only other humans are these kindergartners, and it's one of the most upsetting scenes I've seen in anything. It's so, like, oh my god, that horrible situation of, like, what, yeah. what the fuck can those kids do? Yeah, that's pretty awful. <laughs> that, nope. That's probably the, one of the things that stuck with me, uh, I don't know, the most out of Cronenberg, period, but easily out of that film. For sure, for sure. And you know what, I kind of agree with James in terms of, I think Scanner's opens brilliantly with that head explosion and then yeah. ends phenomenally with uh, Michael Ironside and the other guy having the scanners battle. But in the middle, it's really dull. <laughs> it's just like a really lame chase movie. Super fucking dull. And the lead, you know, God bless him, who also shows up at Dead Ringers. He's so bland and just wooden and vanilla. We are like, this guy, really? We're going to follow this fucking guy? Well, but even but, the scenarios he goes through where it's like, oh, we're like part of a scanner's cult, and it's like a bunch of people in a room just kind of sitting together and not doing anything. I know. Hey, we're a scanner's cult. Sit down. Leno's coming on. And I do agree with you in terms of his later period. I, w- I would definitely say my favorite is Eastern Promises, um, particularly that, that fucking bathhouse scene is one of the most brutal fight sequences I've ever seen in a movie. Ever. And it's that that movie. I was already a Viggo Mortensen fan, but watching that, I'm like, man, this guy's fucking like he's committed. Like he'll do whatever. Yeah, and I really, I really love the interesting relationship between him and Vincent Cassell in that movie. There's a lot of implications about them maybe being gay lovers, but they don't spell it out in a way that works beautifully for that movie. Yeah, and it's also one of my favorite Naomi Watts performances because I'm not huge on her either, but I think she's really good. At- I am huge on her, but it is one of her better performances. I agree. Well, Book of Henry. Book of Henry. Um, okay, but, uh, look, look, that's the worst movie for a lot of people in that movie. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But, it, of course, I would still say The Fly is the top for me, because I rewatched it, too, right before we did this. What I love about that movie is it's gross and upsetting and weird, but like James kind of said, there's so much of, like, an emotional, beautiful core to that movie, where, like, if I were to show that to somebody, they would probably be squincing in horror, like, oh my god, I can't believe what's going on. And I'm just like, oh, their romance could have worked. It was gonna be so beautiful. Yeah, I absolutely love The Fly. I think The Fly is not only body horror perfection, but sci-fi horror perfection, horror remake perfection, 
and it is a never better Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis. I absolutely agree. Uh, the Fly is tip-top Cronenberg. You'd be hard-pressed, in my opinion, to pick a better Cronenberg film than The Fly. And it's weirdly so insular, despite sort of like the big bombastic music and the horrors that are on display. The movie takes place on like three sets. Yep. It, it could be a play, basically. And I hate Stathis. Yet, you're like, aww. Oh, it's piss poor hand. <laughs> well, it's another example where like Stathis is such like a typical eighties asshole yuppie dude, and then by the end of it, when he actually has like a lot of empathy for like I want to help Gene Davis out of the situation, you're like, oh man, Stathis. I know, get him, Stathis, get him. And unfortunately, <laughs> Stathis did not get him, as we later see. Hey, hey he's in the sequel though. That, that, uh, that's true. He's the uh, only uh, one who can say that. Uh, oh no. <laughs> So bad. Not. It, it's a weird thing where that sequel is completely unnecessary. Though I will say it's directed by Chris Wayless, who did the effects for Gremlins. I do uh-huh. like the actual effects work in that movie. It's oh yeah, they're great. dope. Yeah, the effects yeah. are pretty good, yeah. especially that dog hybrid thing. The dog hybrid thing. Like when I was a kid, I saw like the fly and the fly two like back to back. Yeah, and that was so upsetting to me with the dog. Yeah, it's pretty fucked up too. And and the ending bit with the like executive dude who turns into like another dog basically. Yep. Yeah, but it's still bad. Pretty bad. Yes. Don't. It's don't awful. <laughs> uh, but. Thank you for all that feedback. We also want to thank some other people like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. You can listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. And uh, thanks to Emily Scarter for the art they, she provided for our show. And thanks, of course, to our loyal patrons, patreon.com slash GETBpod, where for $1 you can do stuff like vote in some polls that we do for the show, uh, where you decide like what topics we do or what individual movie we do for an individual episode every month. And also you get to listen to a monthly bonus podcast where uh, this month, as we're putting this episode out there, we should also have our audio commentary for The Shining. Yes, that's going to exist. <laughs> Will we love we're, it? Will we hate it? Will we continue to do a show? I don't know. <laughs> Behind the curtain, we're about to record that like right after we're done with this. So Literally. it'll be out there. <laughs> um, but uh, you can find us along with on Patreon.com slash DEDBpod. Uh, you can find us on uh, Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod, where we post up those feelers about like, hey, what are your favorite, least favorite things? And also just like fun little stupid pictures and stuff. And also uh, you can email us feedback if you want, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd uh, as at NotTheWho'sTommy, where I just post up my musings and such. And uh, I also do some writing at MarianiThomas.wordpress.com. Yes, and you can now find me on Instagram or Twitter, which I don't really do much on either. <laughs> Surprise! But uh, you can find me on there. I am at Atom or Adam. So that's A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. And uh, yeah, go ahead and follow me. You know, I, I'll help you out. I'll retweet stuff. I'll like your pictures, whatever you need. And uh, I actually, last night, I recorded a commentary uh, with friend of the show, uh, Desmond uh, Peel. He's uh, over at Desmond's Flicks youtube channel things like that he does a lot of cool stuff but we did a patreon only for him uh commentary of the original my bloody valentine yeah and you record that live originally um but it's still fun to listen to even after the fact yeah did you listen to it yeah it was pretty fun yeah it was all right it was good I, I, we had a good time don't sell yourself so sure you two have a lot of fun with each other i'm so glad you're having that fun that's that's fine <laughs> yeah no we had hey and we used a video that's true, you can see Adam's face. 
I was not prepared for. Like he's sort of like, all right, uh, do you mind doing video? I'm like, well, I got to put on some pants. I'm in my underwear and a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, it turned out pretty good. It was fun. We're going to do another one actually on Halloween night on uh, the actual night of Halloween. We're doing one that's going to be available to everyone. Uh, a live commentary of night of the demons. That's a pretty fun one. Yeah. Be down to listen. Yeah, to that. I'm excited. So yes, Desmond's flicks, everybody. Desmond's Flicks, friend of the show. Yep, check him out. But for more of our rinky-dink operation over here, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, or other podcasting platforms. Uh, and if nothing else, if you could rate, review, or just share the show around, that helps us get more visibility. Even if you can't donate to the Patreon, um, it's a pretty good thing to at least get the word out about, hey, Double-Edged Double Bill's a fun show. If you like movies, listen to it. Slap a retweet on there. Anything. Slap it. Smash that retweet button. Slap that retweet fucking Philly. <laughs> but yeah, just, you know, just hook us up. We do all of this for fun, and it'd be nice to get more people involved in the fun. Yes, for sure. Grow the cults of Double H yes. Double Bill. The Edge Lords. The Edge Lords on Patreon. Yes, one dollar a month. Yep. Edge Lords. But now, Adam, it's time to say goodbye to the Halloween season. As much as we hate to do it, motherfucker. Oh, oh, <laughs> we have to say goodbye, but we're talking about a completely different horrific aspect, uh, which is uh, the next episode will be out on Election Day, everybody. Yeah! Hooray. Um, if you're listening to this episode and the early voting's still around, please vote. Or if you're going to vote on Election Day, please vote. And if you're listening to this episode and uh, Donald Trump won, uh, it was nice knowing you all. <laughs> and if Joe Biden won, you're like, all right. Yeah, that one be like, okay. The other one's like, yeah, you know, choose your district. <laughs> Please vote. But now we're going to be talking about instead of actual presidents, uh, we're going to be talking about fictional presidents this time, Adam. Uh, we decided to do uh, films featuring fictional presidents of either good or bad quality. I have two good ones that fit that topic. You have two bad ones. Um, so it'll be uh, interesting to see because there's plenty of different options. We could choose various different genres. Uh, you could go anywhere with this. So for my two good picks, Adam, number between one and ten. Oh, God. All right, let's. Just go straight up number two. All right. And number three, we have a film from a very prolific director who we've covered as a topic before, actually. And the president is featured prominently, but more as a supporting character, sort of the catalyst for the story. Also interesting, we've covered the sequel to this movie, but never the original. We are talking about John Carpenter's Escape from New York. Oh, excellent. That's a great call. With Donald Pleasance as one of my favorite fictional presidents. <laughs> Yeah, I'm super, super stoked on that. I did not expect that. And what was your other choice? At number six, I had one that I think is kind of underrated. I think it's a cute romantic comedy built around the presidency. I have uh, the Aaron Sorkin scripted The American President. With Mikhail Douglas. Right, and Mikhail J. Fox as well. And Annette Bening. Uh, Annette Bening. Yes, of course. Beautiful American Fox. Um, Yeah, no, I... uh, yeah, I like that movie, too. I, I got no problems with that one. For some reason, I expected that. But, uh, okay, man. Are you ready to sort of turn the pistol the opposite way? Very curious here. So, um, I'll go with number six. At number eight, I have the always-pointing Harrison Ford in Air Force One. Okay, this is one I have not seen before. I thought I've heard most people kind of like this one. This is interesting. Uh, it's so stupid. All of that. This will be very uh, interesting. What was your other choice? Uh, Primary Colors with John Travolta. Oh, the movie where he plays Clinton, basically. 
yeah, pretty much. Which I'm glad also. I'm glad we, that didn't get chose because I, I fucking. Oh God. Oh Travolta <laughs> doing a southern accent and an even worse toupee. It's so weird. <laughs> hey everybody, give me some grits. Wow. <laughs> So good. <laughs> well, I don't think we could have ended our spooky time any better than with a John Travolta impression. So until next time, everybody, uh, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, people. Enjoy it. It's on a Saturday, and it's the best holiday of the year. Good night. Oh, yeah. Are we still doing that? Bye. Bye. <laughs>